While much valuable Christian literature from prior centuries has been republished in recent years, the particular Baptists have been largely ignored. Yet, their contributions in the areas of biblical exegesis, theology, history, and practical Christian living have much to offer today's church. The particular Baptists have always demonstrated a firm and faithful commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ, its proclamation to all the world, and the inspiration, inerrancy, and absolute authority of all of Scripture. We at Particular Baptist Heritage Books desire to champion this God-glorifying, Christ-exalting, word-centered legacy by producing high-quality, handcrafted, hard-cased editions of Particular Baptist works, which we hope will endure for generations to come. Particular Baptist Heritage Books is a nonprofit publishing ministry founded in connection with a local church. With the help from an advisory board consisting of Calvinistic Baptist pastors and scholars, we seek to preserve the history, theology, and relevancy of our particular Baptist forebears by publishing and promoting their most important literary works. Our mission is to glorify God and to strengthen His church by furnishing Christians with the very best of the particular Baptist literary heritage. And so we invite you, come and deepen your Baptist roots at www.particularbaptistbooks.com www.particularbaptistbooks.com This is a narrated Puritan, a part of a ministry of the Man of God Network, a ministry of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary in Owensboro, Kentucky. The sermon I want to narrate part of this morning needs an introduction. In the spring of 2021, I just retired from the United States Postal Service and I wasn't yet working. So I took a little bit more time because of the coronavirus scare that we knew very little about in our day. And with a number of things that were affecting me in the news, I wanted something from the past that would affect me properly, spiritually. And I remembered in the back of my mind that I had uh, Puritan Fast Day sermons on a hard drive. These sermons were given mostly in the 1640s, 1650s, and 1660s by Puritans on their fast day for reflection and as a means to the end of national repentance. There were three of them by John Owen, and there was another one by Stephen Marshall, and the one by Marshall is the one I want to introduce you to today. But first, I want to talk about a couple of those by John Owen. One of them, and these are in Volume 8 and Volume 9 of his Collected Works. It's called National Sins and National Judgments, preached April 11th, 1679. For Jerusalem is ruined, and Judah is fallen, because their tongue and their doings are against the Lord to provoke the eyes of his glory. The show of their countenance witnesses against them, and they declare their sin of Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe unto their soul, for they have rewarded evil to themselves, Isaiah 3, verses 8 and, and verse 9. The second sermon that I narrated in those days, part of that, is made into a podcast for this very program that was called, that sermon is titled, In Humble Testimony Unto the Goodness and Severity of God and is Dealing with Sinful Churches and Nations. 
her only way to deliver a sinful nation from utter ruin by impending judgments. In the discourse on the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, this week I read another sermon by John Owen that actually was a posthumous sermon published in 1690 called Seasonal Words for English Protestants, taken from Jeremiah 51 verse 5. For Israel has not been forsaken, nor Judah of his God of the Lord of hosts, though their land was filled with sin against the Holy One of Israel. What I found interesting about that sermon compared to the other two was it was more of a precursor of judgments that would possibly come upon a nation and what were the symptoms and what would the repentance look like that would divert such a judgment. There is some of that in the last sermon I named as well. Those sermons can be found on Sermon Audio. It's a narrated Puritan, but the sermon before me that I want to introduce you to today is different in that, what would it look like? What would be the sermon that you would preach to warn people that they are past a day of grace as a nation and that destruction was going to come upon them? called Reformation and Desolation, or a sermon tending to the discovery of the symptoms of a people to whom God will by no means be reconciled, preached in the Honorable House of Commons at their late solemn fast, December 22, 1641, Stephen Marshall, minister of Fitchenfield in Essex. Now none of us are prophets, and we don't know what the future holds for the United States of America. I have wondered, however, what would John Owen and Stephen Marshall think if they saw the flagrant sins that are no longer hidden in our day, but are made public. Whether we're at that point or not, I think that this sermon is worth listening to for a tremendous warning, because the fact of the matter is, most of us do not suppose that this could happen to our country. However, apparently these Puritans thought that this could happen to England, and so I will read part of this sermon this morning, taken from Zephaniah 2, verses 1 and 2. Gather yourselves together. Yea, gather together, O nation not desired, before the decree bring forth. Second Kings 23, verse 26. And like unto him, that is King Josiah, there was no king before him that turned to the Lord with all the heart, and with all his soul, and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses. Neither afterwards arose any like to him. Notwithstanding, the Lord did not turn from the fierceness of his great wrath in which his anger was kindled against Judah, because of all the provocations that Manasseh had provoked him with, the king Josiah, right, honorable, and beloved, may most truly be counted not only one of the worthies of the world, but also one of the world's wonders. There is hardly anything recorded of him but what is wonderful, his very birth, his being prophesied of by name about 350 years before he was born and therein was promised to do those great things of which he effected against idolaters and the relics of idolatry. And it was wonderful to think in what a desperate condition the time of the church he was born, in the darkest midnight of apostasy, when the ten tribes were carried away captive, and Judah and Benjamin only were left, and they, as far as the eye of man could see, wholly and generally fallen from the Lord or God to all manner of idols and idolatries, when the very temple of God was made a den of idols, nay, his altar, the only altar of Israel destroyed, to make room for altars erected to idols, 
when the true church had hardly any visible being upon the face of the earth. Yea, I am persuaded that in the darkest times of anti-Christianity, the true church of Christ was never more invisible than it was about that time when Josiah was born. And it was another wonder that in such strong factions as idolatry then had, that any could possibly so prevail in the court as to give such education to the young prince nor is it less wonderful that by that time he was but sixteen years old. He stood out a perfect godly man, undertaking the cause of God and the reformation of religion. And that was such a perfect heart to make the most complete and absolute reformation of the church that ever was wrought by any mortal man since God had a church on the earth. But the success of his labor seems to me the most wonderful of all the rest. Whether you look upon the success it had with a people, or the success it had with God. The success with the people was this, that although at Josiah's first appearing as a right orient and illustrious star in a dark night, there was hardly any visible worship or worshiper to be found, yet he carried all before him like a torrent, and walked like a man of fire, as his name signifies the fire of the Lord, and brought the whole nation so about that there was scarce ever such a covenant made as he procured, and that not by a prevailing party, but the universality of his kingdom joined with him in it, and continued in it, and held close to it all the time that Josiah lived in the world. This was a success that he found among the people, but now the success that all this found with God is yet more wonderful, and this my text will tell you of it, namely, that notwithstanding such a rare man was this that was wonderfully stirred up, thus miraculously carried on with such a perfect heart, with such a unanimous consent of his people, to set upon the work of reform and religion, and did it so as never mortal man did the like before, nor any arose afterward like to him. Yet notwithstanding all this, the Lord did not turn away from the fierceness of his great wrath. And so now you see my text is a description of the altogether hopeless and helpless condition of the church of the Jews. Though there was a physician risen up who had found out the most precious balm that ever was, faithfully applied it, yet the herd of God's people could receive no cure, but they must die for it. And this may be reduced to these two heads first. You have their miserable and forlorn estate in these words, Notwithstanding, the Lord turned not from the fierceness of his great wrath which was kindled against Judah. Secondly, you have the cause of all this, what it was that made God irreconcilably and inexorably set against them in these words, because of all the provocations in which Manasseh had provoked him. Though we were dead between thirty and forty years before Josiah ended his days, Yet his provocations were the cause that God would never be reconciled to his people, though he was reconciled to Manasseh's person before he died. I don't purpose any exact or large handling of this text, nor is it possible to be done in one sermon. I shall only call out such things as are most intended by the Holy Ghost and most suitable to the occasion of our meeting together. First, let us in a few words consider it in relation to the former verse, and secondly, as it lies in itself, as it stands in relation to the former description made of Josiah, 
in the high praises which God there bestows upon him, I thence observe that when God raises up any excellent instruments to appear in his cause, they are most graciously accepted with him, though their endeavor should come to nothing. There shall be glory and honor and immortality and eternal life to themselves, though there be indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish and woe upon the people whom they would willingly do good to. This you see plainly in this text. Josiah sets up a building which was instantly thrown down stick and stone. Yet never man received better wages and greater reward than he did. God has raised up many instruments to do him service, who have had admirable success in their way. Moses brought God's people out of the bondage of Egypt, carried them through a desolate, wasteful, howling wilderness, and that miraculously for forty years together, Joshua gave them the possession of the promised land and left them in it in peace. David subdued all their enemies about them until they were all put under the soles of their feet, leaving them neither adversary nor evil a current. Solomon built God's temple and established a church in the purity of God's worship and ordinances in the commonwealth with admirable peace and prosperity. Yet not any of these more magnified by the Lord than Josiah, whose work came to nothing. This is my first observation that it has these two branches first. It implies that the endeavors of rare instruments may come to nothing, that men may be stirred up with admirable spirits to attempt great things for God, and yet their work miscarry. Secondly, that though their work come to nothing, yet themselves shall be highly magnified with the Lord. I could easily give abundant testimonies and instances of such whom God has raised up with extraordinary spirits, men that we might think had been fit to carry the world before them, who have effected little or nothing. Elias, for one, a man, as it were, made of fire, who at one time called the parliament of the king and all the heads of Israel together, convinced them of their halting between God and Baal, and wrought so at the present that all the people cried out, The Lord is God. It seemed to have their hearts brought back again to the Lord their God. And likewise, did eight hundred idolatrous priests and false prophets were put to the sword. Yet the very next day he was fain to run away to save his life, undertaking a journey of forty days to keep himself from the fury of Jezebel. Jeremiah was another rare man, one of the most zealous instruments that ever God employed, insomuch that he said of himself that he was a man of contention to all the earth. And God's words was in him like fire in his bones, which he could not keep in. Yet this man, in his almost forty years preaching, could neither prevail with king nor princes, prophets, priests, nor people. All grew worse and worse, and himself in the end was carried away by a rebellious company into that accursed land of Egypt. And there he died. And it has been often observed that the Lord has seen it fit for reasons best known to himself to let abundance of the worthies, whom he has employed even so far as man could judge, to perish in the work he has set them about. But secondly, whatever their success has been amongst men, they have been never a whit less regarded or rewarded by the Lord, for this the scripture is plain. Isaiah 49.5 Dared the prophet in Christ's name, and in his own name, and in the name of all God's instruments, concludes, 
that though they spend their strength for naught and in vain, yet surely their work is with the Lord. And though the people be not gathered, yet they shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and their God will be their strength. And Paul says in Second Corinthians 2 verse 15, We are sweet savor to God in them that perish, as well as in them that are saved. And there is plain reason for it, because sincere endeavors to do God's service is our whole work. But the success of these endeavors is God's work. Now the Lord has tied himself in his covenant to reward every man according to his own work, and not according to the work of another. God never required at the hands of any minister to save souls, or at the hand of any magistrate to preserve a nation, of any husbandman to produce a crop out of the ground. This belongs only to himself. He only requires at their hands to be his servants, to obey his will, wherein if they be faithful, they shall not miss of their reward. God compares kings and princes and others of his servants to nursing fathers and nursing mothers. Now that you are persons of quality, if you put forth a child to nurse, you can have perfect information that the nurse loves, attends, suckles your child, and performs all the duties belonging to a nursing mother. This nurse, I say, is by you esteemed and rewarded, whether the child live or die. Yet it may be the more when the child dies, because you see her afflicted in losing your child, which she would gladly have enjoyed. I do but name this. You are wise to apply it to yourselves. You, right honorable and beloved, are employed in great services. God has raised you up to attempt glorious things for his name, for the purging of his house, and the establishing of this great people in the peace of the gospel. How far God will use any of you, I cannot tell, and how far this unworthy nation will acknowledge your indefatigable pains, I cannot tell, as yet you have the prayers and blessings of all sorts of people, high and low, rich and poor, that wish well to Zion, but however go on, you worthies of the Lord, with sincere hearts to do what God requires at your hands, and whether this nation be gathered or not, you shall be glorious in the eyes of God, and the Lord will be your strength. Messiah, you see, had the greatest combination of all others, notwithstanding the Lord turned not from his fierce wrath. And this is all I have to say with the connection of the words that God magnified Josiah, though his work came to nothing. Now let us consider then in themselves. Why I shall not need before so grave an intelligent assembly to waste a time in analyzing or giving the grammatical interpretation of so plain and easy a text. I shall only take up three doctrinal observations, which you will see to lie clearly in the words, and handle them as the Lord shall please to enable me, in the time permit, whereof the first is, that God's wrath is the most fearful and dreadful thing when it is once thoroughly kindled. The second and main doctrine is that the sins of a church and people may come to that height, and God's wrath may be kindled to that heat. Notwithstanding the Reformation, God will inexorably go on to a desolation. Notwithstanding all that Josiah did, the Lord turned not from his fierce wrath. The third is, this being done for Manasseh's provocations, I observe that the sins of one generation may be the ground and cause of the destruction and ruin of the succeeding generation. The abominations that Manasseh committed and commanded in his time 
were the cause why God was unappeasably bent to the destruction of the generation that lived after him. I begin with the first, that the wrath of God, when it is greatly kindled, is extremely fierce, or it is a most dreadful thing to be under God's wrath. When it is once kindled, mark how the words here, wonderfully emphatic, how dreadfully expressed God turned not from the fierceness of his great wrath wherewith his anger was kindled. David says, If his wrath be kindled but a little, blessed are all they that put their trust in him, implying their misery that be under it. But when there is a fierceness of his great wrath, they are miserable indeed who are under that. Now, to apply this to ourselves, it might first teach all who are reconciled to God by Christ what infinite cause they have every day of their life to bless that grace of God which has not appointed them to wrath, but by the blood of his Son, has delivered them from wrath to come and provided for them everlasting glory and happiness. Secondly, it may likewise teach all that fear God never to envy the prosperous estate of any child of Belial, the waters of a full cup be wrung out for them, though they swim in wealth and honor, and pomp in this world, and have all their hearts can desire, and in the meantime account it their glory that they carry not the Lord's yoke. Never envy their lot. If any here knew of half a score, good fellows set at a banquet of wine, furnished with all the helps of mirth and jollity, if he knew with that that the shot to be paid for it must be every man's heart's blood, he would be loath to be one of the pack with them. I confess that it is a hard thing not to be troubled at the prosperity of wicked men. Even then David and Jeremiah found it a hard thing not to envy their prosperity, but stay till the shot be paid. Inquire how able they will be to undergo the wrath of God. Enter into the sanctuary, understand their end, and your envy will be at an end. But these I intended not to insist upon. There is one only proper use for the present occasion, and that is this. We are met this day together to fast and pray and mourn before the Lord. And as I mentioned before, by this you acknowledge that the wrath of God is kindled and that yourselves are called to take a course to turn away God's wrath. And I verily believe this is the very end you aimed at, calling us the unworthy ministers of Christ to your help this day, that we might be assistance to you in whatever might turn away the wrath of God from you. Doctrine Number 2. In reformation, God may still go on to desolation. The sins of a people may come to that pass and God's wrath may be kindled to that height, that notwithstanding their reformation, God will go on to a desolation. In handling, whereof I shall, the Lord helping me, discuss these three things first, shall open this thing up, clear the conclusion, and see if I can make you understand it. Secondly, inquire in hypotheses whether it concerns us or not whether our nation, church, or state may be thought to be in any danger of it. And thirdly, I shall endeavor to make some uses which may be fitting for such an assembly as this is, for clearing the manner. I shall endeavor these three things. First, I will demonstrate the truth of it. Secondly, I will inquire whether the signs of it may be known and how far they may be known, whether the Lord has left any footsteps or rules for us to prognosticate by, 
And so to judge, when a people has come to that pass, and if so then, thirdly, what those tokens are, and I shall endeavor to speak plainly and freely of them all, for the truth of it, were there no other instance to be found in any other story but this in my text, it were sufficient to prove that such a thing may be, that which has been already may be so again. Josiah, we see, wrought such a reformation that the whole kingdom did, all his days, follow the Lord. And notwithstanding all this, God did not turn from his fierce wrath, but went on to destroy them. The Lord threatens elsewhere that he would do it. Zephaniah 2, verses 1 and 2. Gather yourselves together before the decree bring forth, before the day pass as a chaff, before the fierce anger of the Lord come upon you. And, as if he should have said, the decree is not yet come forth, but if once it bring forth, it will be too late for you to seek for mercy. There are other examples, though not so full as this, sufficient to prove this truth is Nineveh. For one, the Lord sent a prophet Jonah to preach repentance or destruction to them. And you know it is said, the king laid aside his crown and called them all to repentance. And they did repent. And God saw their works. And for a while forbore that city. And yet, the judgment of most interpreters is that within forty years after the city was destroyed, even in the same age where the Reformation was made. The example of the Jews is most remarkable. In our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ's time, John the Baptist came before him and turned the hearts of the parents to the children and the children to the parents, making ready a people prepared for the Lord. There went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea, all the region about Jordan, and were baptized of him, confessing their sins. And Christ has so many followers that the scribes and Pharisees said all the world went after him, that is, a body of their nation. And the apostles converted so many that they said to Paul that there were many myriads, many ten thousands of Jews that believe who are all zealous, yet notwithstanding in that very age, in which the gospel wrought thus effectually among them, the wrath of God came upon that nation to the utmost and scattered them over all the world. The second question is, whether this may be known, whether we may possibly find out any direction we wish to judge by of God's purpose of thus coming against the people. Answer, and for that, I confess, a great many men especially such as are not willing to have any dangerous truth preached to them, do think that all preaching and study in such points as these is of no more certainty than the judgment of judicial astrology. Tell them of the wrath to come, or desolation of churches, or destruction of commonwealth. They look on such as shall tell them of these things as upon a company of ignorant people who will be of their author's faith, or esteem them as proud men who would be thought to have more acquaintance with God's secrets than their neighbors, and therefore they must adventure upon such high points, or at best conceive them to be sullen, discontented, melancholic people, who look on everything with black spectacles, but in the meantime themselves will never be persuaded that any can give them rules of directions to judge in this kind. But you are wise, and if you please to take two or three places of scripture into your serious thoughts, 
you will conclude quickly that this is a point that may be known. The one is Jeremiah 8 verse 7, where the Lord blames the stupidity of the people, that whereas the stork in the heavens knows her appointed times, and a turtle and the crane and a swallow observe the times of their coming, but his people would not know the judgments of the Lord, arguing them to be more silly and simple than the very birds and fowls who could observe what seasons were fit or unfit for their staying or removing in such or such a country. And God's people remained ignorant of the seasons of God's approaching judgments. Another place you shall find in Hosea 7 verse 9 where the Lord says of Ephraim, that is, the ten tribes, gray hairs are scattered here and there upon him, yet he knows it not. The meaning plainly is this, that his gray hairs are remembrances, and plain tokens of declining old age coming upon men. So there were symptoms and tokens of Ephraim's ruin coming upon him, and yet he would not take notice of it. Our blessed Savior also in Matthew 16 verses 1 to 3 tells his hearers that they can make almanacs for weather and discern the face of the sky, and yet could not discern the signs of the times, implying that prognostications might also be made if men would study the right way, whereby they might know what God intends to do with the people. So then there is one step gained, that something may be known of God's approaching judgments that I may not deliver anything but what you shall have a full suffrage for. I add in the next place and confess that because all seasons are in God's hands and all people under his absolute prerogative so that if he pleases he may destroy a nation for one sin and again if he pleases he can exercise so much mercy that no sense of a people can set any bounds or limits thereunto. Nothing but his own holy will setting limits to his patience, long-suffering, and mercy. And because also God always bears such a tender regard to his own children, that wherever they live, he does often for their sakes, as it were, reverse a sentence of desolation. In regard of these things, and some other things which might be suggested, I think I may say no mortal man can possibly determine when the precise time of this or that nation's utter ruin is certainly come. What Christ said of the day of judgment may fitly be applied here. The very day and hour of the last judgment no man knows, but only the Father and the Son, to whom it is revealed from the Father, and not also since his resurrection. But, yet, there are signs in which we may know the approaching of that day. So we may say of this, that we cannot know the very time of a nation's desolation, Yet we may know when the ruin of it comes near at hand. And when learned men say of them who have studied for the philosopher's stone, though they could never find out the elixir, yet in their search after it, they have found out many excellent things, admirably useful for mankind. So in this search, if we cannot determine that such a nation will infallibly be ruined, yet we may find certain such things is by them to learn what to fear, what to expect, what to pray against, what to strive after, and so on. And so consequently the handling of this question may be exceedingly useful to such an assembly, as I am now called to speak to in the name of God. This then is the second step that we may know such things as may make us fear desolation. 
and consequently labor to prevent it or prepare for it. Thirdly, the main question is to inquire what are the tokens, the gray hairs, the flourishing of the almond tree, in which we may guess that man's going to his long home. I answer, politicians and some theologians will tell you of the fatal period of kingdoms, that they have their youth, their strength, and after a time their decline, and show by abundance of experience that states seldom continue above five or six hundred years without some fatal change. But we must go by a surer rule than this. It is not length of time which makes God weary of showing mercy, but, what Solomon says of kings, for the transgressions of a land many are the princes of it. So for the transgressions of a land, and the transgressions only, many are the ruins of it. Now there is only one rule which God has always proceeded by in the dissolution of churches and kingdoms ever since the beginning of the world, and that is this that whensoever the sins of any church, nation, city, family, or person, you may take it as large or as narrow as you will, are come to a full measure, then God infallibly brings ruin upon them. This is a rule which I shall make plain to you. God has set several vessels to limit the sins of all nations, beyond which they shall not go, as once God said to the waves of the sea, Hitherto you shall go. But here your proud wave shall be stayed. So God has said of the sins of nations, families, and persons, Thus far I will forbear you, but further your wickedness shall not exceed. Then comes your end. But how may we judge when the sins of a people grow to the full? I answer, and but briefly, because I would not be burdensome, to an attentive auditory, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak and the best of us. To find out sin's fullness, four things must come into consideration. First, what kind of sins they are which are land-destroying sins. Secondly, the quantity of these sins. Thirdly, the aggravation of them. Fourthly, which is the upshot of it all the incorrigibleness of them. First, the kinds of them. I mean thus, there was never any church or nation without sin. But all sins are not church-wasting sins, nor land-destroying sins. But there are sins which are called abominations, such as make a land spew out the inhabitants, such as make God drive them out. And there are some of them against the first table of the law, some against the second table, Against the first table first, the sin of idolatry. Evermore, as idols come in, God goes out. When there was an image of jealousy set up, God goes far from his sanctuary. God does not like such neighbors. When Ephraim offended in Baal, he dies for it. When the mean man bows himself and the great man humbles himself, to stocks and stones, God will not spare them any longer. The glory due to Jehovah is communicated to dumb idols. This God will bear at no people's hand. And the reason is plain. This is as a marriage bed to God. This provokes his jealousy, which is his rage. And he will accept of no ransom. This, therefore, is the abomination that makes all desolation. Secondly, the sense of profaning, contemning, 
scorning and persecuting of God's holy things, his holy day, his holy servants. I join all these sins together because they come all from the same root, that is, malignancy against God. God himself is profane, slighted, contemned in all these. You have despised my holy things and profaned my Sabbath. Therefore, you have caused your day to draw near. God, therefore, would make Moab as Sodom and the children of Ammon as Gomorrah, because they reviled his people. But there is one proof may serve instead of an hundred. Second Chronicle 36 The Lord did a long time bear with them, but when once they came to that pass, they polluted his house, despised his word, mocked his messengers, misused his prophets, his wrath grew hot against them till there was no remedy. Secondly, when the number of these sins is very considerable, when they are universal, no nation ever was without them, but when once they come to spread as a gangrene over the whole body, then the measure quickly grows full, when all flesh has corrupted their ways and the flood came rushing in, when the crown of the head and the sole of the foot the whole body was full of wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. Then it was to no purpose for God to strike them any more, with any hope of healing. You shall find in the 24th of Ezekiel a notable description of Jerusalem's condition. When Nebuchadnezzar came to destroy them, the prophet compares the city to a great pot, in which all the choice pieces were put to be boiled the thigh and the shoulder and all the choice bones, but they were all rotten flesh whose scum would not be boiled out, meaning that the princes and rulers, prophets and priests and people were all overspread with abominable wickednesses. So in the 22nd of Ezekiel, all states are brought in, the prophets devouring souls, the priests violating the law, profaning holy things, princes and rulers oppressing, the people robbing and so on. Then God powers out his indignation and consumes him with the fire of his wrath. This must be understood with this caution, that when I say all, tis not to be understood as if God would spare a people until the whole multitude grew wicked and none remaining on his side. God has seven thousand in Israel who were faithful to him in the worst time of Ahab's apostasy. But the meaning is, when the number of such has abstained from these abominations is so small that they are not considerable. To God they are always considerable, but not always considerable as to the turning away of judgment or to the preventing of ruin. Ten righteous men would have been considerable in Sodom for the sparing of it when five would not. So the sum is that when these abominations are generally spread, and very few in comparison abstaining from them, a people grows ripe, a pays for destruction. The third thing considerable is the aggravation of these sins. And in this I shall only give this one brief rule, that in all places and countries, houses, families, or persons, the more mercy, light, and means these sins are committed against, the sooner is a vessel of their iniquity come to the full. Amos 3 verse 2, You only have I known of all the nations of the world, and therefore I will visit you for all your iniquities. Ezekiel 9, God begins at his sanctuary, and with the ancient men, who had stood longest before him. And Daniel makes this a reason why God brought a greater evil upon them than upon any other nation, 
because no other nation had enjoyed the like means to keep them from sin or to bring them to repentance. The last thing to consider to find out the fullness of sin is the incorrigibleness of it. And if the Lord grant that we can quit ourselves of this, we shall yet do well. By this incorrigibleness, I mean that the sins of a people are grown so great that they are too strong for the mounds and banks which God has set to keep them in compass. Now, God has set four boundaries for sin, and when sin is grown too strong for all these, you may conclude that reserving or accepting what God may do in his absolute prerogative, if he goes by his wanted rules, that nation is going to her long home. First, God has set conscience and shame to be boundaries among all people to keep sin in compass. Conscience, to make them stand in awe of God. Shame, to make them stand in fear of men. These two God has set up as his officers and heralds in all men's hearts. And when once men can run into sin as a horse into the battle, rejoicing to do evil, proclaiming their sins as Sodom, not being ashamed and past all feeling, there is one bank broken down, one boundary plucked up. Secondly, another bank that God has set is the example and conversation and prayers of his own people, whom he scatters here and there amongst men. And great is the power and force of their presence to keep sin in compass, partly by the majesty of the image of God shining in them, partly by their holy examples, partly by their wise and seasonable counsels, admonitions, reprehensions, partly by their prayers, in which they bring down restraining and constraining grace. Now when these are either taken away from a place by death, or driven away by persecution as lot out of Sodom, or living amongst them, God takes off their edge to pray no longer. Is Abraham for Sodom or Jeremiah for the Jews? There is a second boundary pulled up. The third is that of magistrates and ministers whom God has invested with his own authority and put upon them some beams of his own majesty and image, put his sword into their hands and arms them with power to keep sin in and beat it down. The magistrate, having the sword of justice and thereby being made ministers, having the sword of the spirit, these two are strong rampires and banks. They are those things that hinder the course of sin, the physician to the hurts of God's people. And when once the sins of a land grow too strong for these, farewell all. You will soon hear the days of their visitation are at hand. There is but one more which when it is likewise cast down, destruction is at the very door, and that is God's lesser judgments. There is but one more, which when it is likewise cast down, destruction is at the very door, and that is God's lesser judgments. Sometimes keeps petty sessions to prevent great assizes, inferior executions to prevent utter desolations, which when they prevail not, it is a certain token of extreme wrath. Sometimes God afflicts your neighbor nations, destroying their cities, and the rest might receive instruction and their dwelling not be cut off. His judges will hang up a thief upon a gibbet to keep others from the gallows. I have overthrown some of you, God says, as Sodom. I have smitten you with blasting and mildew. I have sent among you the pestilence, yet you have not turned to me. Why should you be smitten any more? 
You shall see this notably expressed in the 24th of Ezekiel. God compares Jerusalem to a pot, and all the inhabitants to flesh boiling in the pot. But all the boiling would not fetch out their scum. No threatenings, no visitations, no inferior judgments could prevail with them. But still, their scum, their blood, their filthiness and lewdness abode in them. Mark then in the thirteenth verse what doom God gives of them. Because I have purged you, and you were not purged, I have tried all the means to do you good, and you would not be reformed. You shall never be purged from your filthiness any more, till I have caused my fury to rest upon you. Ah, the Lord has spoken it, and I will do it. Whether this concerns us, and what answer would you have me give you? I could willingly answer in this as Daniel did Nebuchadnezzar when he was to interpret a dream to the king when in a true exposition foretold Nebuchadnezzar's fall it is said Daniel stood still for an hour the thoughts troubled him and in the end he speaks out my lord the dream be to them that hate you and the interpretation of it to your enemies so I say oh let the parallel of this be some other people Oh, that it might not fit England or America, but does it fit it? Right honorable and beloved, your great wisdoms, your diligent inspection, your ample intelligence, your faithfulness and sincerity makes you better able to judge than my meanness can attain to am none of the wisest observers of the time. But I must speak, and what I speak, I speak freely and humbly, I would. I could speak sorrowfully. I know I speak to wise men who can well judge what I say.